This is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download. Mike Davis, Matthew Dillner, Leavon, all folks are in the house and we got a great guest today. Uh, Dave Marcus is going to come by talk about his career. It spans five plus decades, so we got <laughs> we got a lot to cover. <laughs> and uh, let's get started. Hi guys, so uh, we had this race this past weekend at Mar- uh, Watkins Glen. We did the race radio style. You it's, love that. It's it's a lot of fun. I really do enjoy it. I um. I didn't like doing it at Pocono. The track's so too small, and the, we get the we get the cars in such a small window, and you have to spit out a thought. And a lot of times they're coming through there the same way they did the last lap, mm. and trying to create something new and something different to say uh, is real tough. But at Watkins Glen, it, it is fun, wild, and it, it's always something new happening in. Uh, the interloop where I'm at, I'm kind of in a coveted spot between me and Mike Bagley and Jeff Burton. Uh, so I'm not going to complain. And I had a blast there last year. I had another great time this year. I love doing the radio style broadcast at that track. We also do it at Indy. Again, I'm not a fan of doing it at the ovals, but uh, at the road courses, it works really well. Anyways, if you've listened to a race on the radio, they talk uh with a ton of energy Mm. all right and that's because they're out next to the racetrack where the cars are particularly at pocono we i was 10 feet away from the 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 track and it's loud so your your instincts are to talk louder and so there's uh there's that there's that part so the cars are coming by and you're trying to talk over that and also you're watching a live event. You're watching it in person. That is more exciting than than how you might call it from sitting on your couch. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. So the the fact of the atmosphere and the energy, uh, the you know the fact that you're watching it in person and it's happening right in front of you for the first time. It's organic. It's it's live, and uh, it's loud. Uh, you end up talking louder than normal than you would in the booth at least. But anyways. The comments on our race from the fans in uh, the majority are very favorable. A lot of people really, really like the radio style. But there is a small group that have two different opinions about it. All right, And one opinion is that we scream too much. Mm. It's annoying that I, me or Burton or whoever's screaming, I don't like it, which they'd stop screaming. right? And so I personally tried to quell some of that okay not shrill as much because i I, when you're excited and you're talking about a real great battle or you're seeing a car spin uh for example in the xfinity race kyle bush had that problem with suspension he comes sliding by me it was a shock yeah to to see that he was going to dominate and win that race and now here he is spinning for whatever reason right underneath me and so in those moments it's hard not to react naturally and 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 it sounds somewhat unnatural, I imagine. But so I was getting that feedback, and I was thinking, man, I'm gonna try harder to sort of bring that down a little bit, not not get so amped up and so loud and high pitched, especially when there's a action or a wreck or somebody getting spun out. So I was conscious about it. All right. So there's there's that opinion. There's that, the screaming group. There's that's the, it. Like, yeah. don't you're screaming. There's a yep. Yeah. Okay. The other opinion is is 
that they can't hear us at all over the engines. That I'm in that group. Mike, you're in that group. Yes. All right, and that uh, I've seen that quite a bit for for every race. Yes, I have. I'm in that group every right. race. And I'm hearing that there's a fix for that, and it's in your television settings. And Matthew, you yep. did a little bit of searching, uh, and and now this might not work for everybody, but give it a go, Matt. Yeah, it's not even just racing. You know, if you're watching football, if you're watching hockey, if you're watching baseball, you will notice sometimes on your TV, depending on your TV, that you'll hear those sounds, the background sounds, more than the announcer. So it's all how the the, uh, the mix is done, so the surround sound settings and whatnot. So the best thing to do is go into your TV settings, go into sound modes. There's uh, different modes like news, uh, clear voice. Uh, if you don't have those, you could go into the EQ, lower the bass a little bit, uh, increase the treble. That could help as well. If you have uh, things like an Apple TV and you go into settings, audio and video, there's settings uh, called reduce loud sounds. So uh, go in and play with your uh, surround sound settings because that's what it is. Because uh, whether you're on the Fox side or the NBC side, it doesn't matter. You're watching baseball, football. A lot of times you'll hear the tackles and all that stuff, and the, the announcer's voices will be reduced. Uh, you can go into your settings and get that optimal setting all right I, yeah i was prepared to ask if is this something that's intentional to give us an at track feel yes, yes. If, the, if that's what nbc's doing and not knowing good well you may not be privy to that knowledge i mean yeah. you're you're a broadcaster you're not you know the sound I had, technicians and stuff. i had leah look up some of the comments on social media let's hear some of those yeah, right. it was a little bit of a mixed bag um <laughs> what was i in there uh, <laughs> <laughs> i didn't pull yours mike right. um nascar uh on NBC is providing great coverage. Um, one critique, however, lower the race noise and playing in-car audio. It's really hard to understand, which is something I notice as well. Um, oh, they're talking about specifically in-car audio. Yeah, that was yeah. specific I to c- that. I never can understand what the radio chatter is. Yeah, I couldn't. Like, Chad Knauss was yeah, yelling. Don't know what I he's had saying. no idea what he said. Right. Yeah. Um, NBC really has to work on the audio mix. I'm all about loud cars, but uh, when I watch on TV, I expect to be able to hear the commentary. Um, so things like that. But then some of the positives, um, they love the around-the-track play-by-play style. It definitely adds to the excitement. Um, they love that you could hear the crowd on TV, which is something I notice as well. Mm, yes. That's a good point. I like that. That makes it like a, re- it's a true setting um, that you're at the racetrack. Uh, and like Dale said, uh, NASCAR <laughs> NBC, listen to us. We don't want to watch the race with teenage girls screaming things. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I noticed a comment that that when they're in their, I don't know what else to call it other than the screen mode, but when they're trying to talk up and they're excited, Jeff Burton and Dale Jr.'s octaves are very similar. Similar, yeah, I agree. So I've listened back to some of that, and yeah, I agree, me and Jeff sound similar when we get to the same place there, when there's something wild on them. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, I know I've done some radio pit reporting type things, and when you're down in the pits, you're, you're, instead of eating the mic, it's an instinct to to speak up. Speak up. Well, listen, so anyway, that's interesting. I think that um, you know, for those, for, for one, I can't, you know, for the people that don't like the screaming, which uh, I don't know if it's true. I'm not. I don't feel like I'm really screaming, but for the people that don't like that style, I don't know that that'll ever go away. If I'm always in the booth or calling the race, there's going to be. I'm going to do it in a way that. Um, comes natural i'm not faking that i'm not trying to amplify something that's not there i'm not trying to blow up or you know make a race that's not exciting exciting i'm talking about the action the way it's making me feel in my heart and so you know i love racing and i love what i'm watching and i enjoy all types of battles i enjoy ass whoopings by 15 seconds and i enjoy what we saw yesterday. Mm-hmm. So 
when you're hearing uh, that's another comment I think we see sometimes is they're making something out of nothing. Oh God! They, they, and uh, yeah. well, that's gonna make me angry. I can, I'm, I'm just being. I'm just say right out front that when you're hearing me on there and you're hearing any kind of emotion, it's genuine emotion for what I'm seeing. I love my job. I love what I'm doing. I'm having fun in that moment, and I'm also liking what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. You know, because I enjoy and love racing. So. Um, and as far as the screaming, I mean, it's just, I, I, I tried to control it a little bit. Like during, if you listen to the first probably stage of the race, I didn't think, I wasn't thinking about it. And I was just probably getting a little bit wild in a few instances. And then I started trying to control it a little bit in the second stage and then the final stage for sure. And so hopefully that helps some of those people. But So were you literally making those decisions to control it based off of Twitter feedback? Don't get mad at me, Mike. But yes, I'm. Look, I know, listen. It's not I'm going to scream. No, well, let me say, let me say that I know not to do. I know not to take that kind of input directly from Twitter. But these are people that are watching the race in the moment, and so it's not. Fair, it's fair not. Point. Yeah, it's not reactionary. Day later, weeks later. I got you. Um, this is someone going. Hey, I love this, but I don't like this. Right fair at point. this second. Um, and so I was conscious about it, but in the in the end, I'm not going to broadcast how I don't, I'm not going to do it how I don't want to do it. I'm That's not right. going to do the job. I don't have to do the job. Don't need the money. I love doing it. I want to do it because I have fun doing it. And I'm going to do it the way I want to do it and the way I think it should be done. I always loved the radio uh, broadcast. Back oh, that- in the 80s, we didn't have TV. <laughs> you had nothing but radio. It was always awesome, energetic. It sounded amazing. They always were, for some people, yelling. Uh, if you... You know, look at any race call where there's a great last lap. Listen to the announcers. Oh yeah, they're they're excited. Or anytime a caution comes out, like yeah. you know, anytime uh, there's a wreck or an accident, yeah. you know, anything. Right, spinning three one four one two. I mean, like, like they get, they go up there and yeah. stay up there, and that's I wouldn't want to that do another another, That's the other thing. I think people act like this is the first time <laughs> you know broadcasting has ever been done this way uh, with energy. Yeah, I think that is what is missing from yes. our broadcasts for the last decade is that energy. Absolutely. And so I'm here to bring it. I'm bring it. And Damn straight. Yeah. Amen. We can all agree I'm, on that. I apologize if it's not your favorite style. Uh, I apologize for them sucking <laughs> and having bad opinions. Hey, then they could just turn on golf, now, man, and, and just yeah. have the race on visually. That's right. That's yeah. fine. Right. For everyone who loves it, I'm glad you love it. I'm thankful because it means I get to stay up there. If you didn't like it, I mean, <laughs> really – it wouldn't be how it wouldn't matter how much my employer loved me or thought thought of me. It's all about what the fans enjoy, I, and for now, uh, the majority of you are enjoying the broadcast, and so that means that we keep keep our jobs and keep keep uh, going to the track. So I appreciate it. Hey, you had a lot of things to be excited about in that race, by the way. <laughs> God, I mean, there were awesome. a lot of things. There was two. Awesome races, Saturday and Sunday. Oh yeah. The joke after the Xfinity race amongst uh, the NBC folks was that man, Dale, you had everything happening down there, and uh, you know, I so I'm not going to complain. I was, I'm in the preferred location when it comes to uh, Watkins Glen. Um, I'm not, you know, I would, uh, I would be happy calling the race anywhere, but I'm telling you, in that bus stop, it they, is wild. They even gave you. The best camera angle that I have ever seen in oh, live yeah, sports yeah, yeah. TV, Kevin. They gave you a t- like a camera that ran the entire length of the back stretch there. Yeah. It was so cool. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty awesome. But like, okay, opinions. Kyle and Bubba. 
All right, so that's a pretty interesting uh, – that also involved a Twitter handle that uh, popped up on my timeline. So I turned to see Bubba sliding into the wall, mm-hmm. and I, I have to open the mic because I can't just start going, oh, there he is. I have to reach over, mash the button, mm-hmm. and then I can start talking, which you realize that I <laughs> made a mistake at the end of the race and didn't do. That was funny. <laughs> yeah. So I see Bubba spinning and hitting the wall. I did not see why. But they were putting Speedy Dry on the exit of the inner loop, so I just assume. Well, you know, I'm not gonna, point, I'm not gonna make up. You know, right? I'm not gonna blame a driver that didn't spin him out. I'm just gonna say maybe he yeah. got loose and that stuff. I did not see the beginning of it, but I hit my mic and I go, "Hey, Bubba Wallace is over here in the fence, guys, uh, in the tire barrier with the left rear quarter panel." You know, we go through that whole process, and uh, someone on Twitter said. He got turned around by Kyle Busch. If you would look at the racing on the track instead of staring at your monitor, you'd know that. And I said, uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah, I love the critique um, what an awesome and model. advice. Anyways, so I tweet back to the guy. I said, I have to watch what's on the monitor because that's what I need to be calling. I can't, I can't call a battle for 10th if what you're seeing on television as if you were at home is the battle for the lead. You would be, you'd be compu- confused and think I was a complete moron. Mm-hmm. And so while I have to watch the monitor and call what I'm seeing and, and also see the track hopefully catching those crashes as they're happening, it's a bit of a different, you know, you have to bounce back and forth from monitor to track, monitor to track. And so, um, but he said, he goes, you know, he didn't spin out by himself, uh, this Twitter handle. He goes, he got help from Kyle. Mm. And I said, all right, mm-hmm. well, we don't have anything. We, can't, we don't have a uh, coverage of it. We don't have a camera coverage of that. Um, but I, you know, put that in the back of my mind. And then obviously we saw what happened on the front straightaway between them two where, uh, Bubba spins him out. And so I used that thanks to that Twitter follower mm-hmm. for saying, Hey, that's how that started. And I said, you yeah, I think we know now how Bubba ended up in the tire barrier over here after in the, chica- in the carousel. The other part too is, um, that's tough for me was they, I've always called it the bus stop. It's the bus stop. Yeah. NBC. And Bagley and everyone else calls it the inner loop. But it's not a freaking loop. So right. I don't call it an inner loop. Right. It's a bus stop. That's what I've always called it. Yeah. And so I was <laughs> trying. So, you know, Bags would say, here they come to Dale Jr. in the inner loop. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to say, yeah, they're coming through the bus stop. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to, you know, conflict. So I tried to say inner loop. Oh, really? And it yeah. screwed me up so bad. <laughs> I was so screwed. I was calling the carousel the inner loop and the, the inner loop, loop the carousel loop. <laughs> it, was, it was a mess. So yeah. I've always called it the inner loop. Contrary to popular belief, I don't always agree with uh, Dale Jr. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I've, I've never called it the bus stop. Right. right. I've always called it the bus stop, especially since when they miss it, they have to come to a stop. Um, and there's a bus. <laughs> there's right? a bunch of buses. Well, there's a bus <laughs> that has a deck on it that rut was on called the bus stop and so you know for for and you're an older fan as well you're an old you know, so old. it's not well it's not a generation thing it's not a history thing it's just what people prefer i'm sure maybe it's more indycar f1-ish to call it the inner loop maybe. more redneck or or <laughs> or nascar to call it the bus stop um i don't know bus stops just so much easier than inner loop as far as your yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure. I think Twitter, you, I'm sure Twitter can correct everybody if they're calling oh, yeah. the part of a track use, wrong. I think you use less muscles, Mike. No, no talking about Twitter, Mike. Bus stop. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, 
I found all that stuff pretty interesting. The Twitter back and so, forth, and I, you know, I try not to pick up Twitter during the race because as soon as I do, I can't put it down. Really? Yeah, because <laughs> I'm so curious. Yeah, what what people's opinion of our broadcast yeah, is? I got you. Or the race, and uh, you know, like I said, you'll learn something from your followers. Uh, what's what's going on on the track that they're seeing that you're not? You know, as a broadcaster, you're imperfect, and you're not seeing everything, and they let you know. And so, you know, I, I, I try not to pick it up because I don't want to get distracted. Yeah. Um, but sometimes, I mean, we follow, I end up following Twitter pretty much every single race. That's interesting. And I reply a time or two to, to something. Yeah, at the end of the race, I forgot to open my mic. Been doing it um, without even thinking about it all day long. And, yeah, that fine. We stood there forever before they brought us on camera after the race was over with, going through interviews and so forth and victory lane ceremony and whatnot. And, they came to us for our final thoughts, <laughs> and I'm thinking, man, I'm getting off this perch. I'm climbing, climbing down here. I'm going home, and started talking, and the button was muted. <laughs> but you caught it right away. Did some was somebody in your ear? No. Oh, so you just knew, just kind of. I can hear myself in my headphone. I think that's another reason why that there's a disconnect between. So, to bring up the he- headphones, everyone in the truck, NBC trucks, got headphones on. Or I think listening to the race, they're hearing. They we're talking to them producer everyone there right everyone working at the race camera guys producers everyone's got a headset on just mm-hmm. like this right mm-hmm. all the all the uh commentators also have headsets on all right so we're all hearing this content the same way the same way we're doing this podcast while you're at home you're on your couch several feet away from your television not using a headset catching every detail so when we hear the in-car audio, man, it sounds fine. I don't know what you're talking about. But imagine at home, sitting several feet from your TV, not knowing it's coming, and it pops off. And you're like, wait, what was that? I didn't catch that. And it's probably not as audible as what you might hear if you were plugged into a headset, right? Imagine sitting at home, Leah, and listening to the race, as odd as it would be, with a headset on. Yeah, right. tuned in. You would probably hear that audio just fine. Yeah, yeah right? incredible, actually. Yeah, and so... You'd understand what Chad said, which was in- incredible that he said that. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. But I don't. I'm not encouraging you to do that. I'm just saying that's probably the disconnect, and there's some sort of a there's some sort of fix for that. Yeah, I imagine a lot of people probably didn't catch exactly what he said, but luckily there's Twitter. You can go on Twitter and yeah. follow and see. They're going to tell you everything he said as far as the in car audio. But anyways, and I enjoyed my experience. I love radio style. I'm not eh, that thrilled about. Doing it at Indy, we'll do it. We'll have fun with it. Uh, I think that uh, if I was better at it, I would be more excited about it. And so I told myself, I, uh, man, I'm, I got down after Pocono. I got real bummed out after Pocono because I didn't think I did a good job. I didn't think it went well. I didn't think the broadcast was as good as it could be. And I felt like I was uh, you know, a big part of that. Um, this weekend it felt better. It always doesn't. There's always enough content, things happening. There's always a battle or a race to to talk about in in every lap in mm-hmm. your space. Um, there won't be at Indy. They're going to come down be. that. They're going to come into turn three or wherever they put me, and there'll be you know they look for the, the most same part, as they did. They'll look the same as they did the last time. Right. And uh, trying to get creative on the spot is uh, is hard to do. Something I don't. I'm not great at. And if I do it enough and do it more and work hard at it, I can get better. And I'm going to try to do that instead of trying to get away from it. I'm going to try to try get better at it and keep doing it. 
It's right well, it's, attitude. Well, if it's yeah. any solace, nobody can hear you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing. <laughs> I'm playing. That's a good way to end it. Hi, I'm Dylan Hart Jr. Do Time Off is a campaign by Mountain Dew. They want to empower people to do what they love, and they help remove those barriers to get in the way of their passion. Do the two. Thanks to Mountain Dew, I'm giving some of my employees some DTOs. Do time off. And $1,000 to pursue their passions. Stay tuned and do the do. Okay, our guest today doesn't take any bull, but, you know, he's a no BS guy. But before we get to him, let's talk about workout gear. Mm. Believe it or not, we're going to talk about some workout gear that's no BS as well. It's called No Bull. That's right. No Bull is on a mission to create products built for people who train hard day after day. They don't believe in excuses or BS, and that's why you won't find any in their footwear, apparel, or accessories. Listen, don't let the simple design fool you. No Bull's gear is built to perform. Their product philosophy... Don't put anything on a product that doesn't do anything. Take everything off that you don't need. Be honest about what the product does. It's kind of like building a race car. If you don't need it on there, don't have it on there. If you want to build a slick race car, you don't need anything on it that doesn't make it go faster. Their apparel is designed to be the most comfortable apparel for the most uncomfortable training. Make it part of your training fundamentals. Your new go-to workout gear. I even got a box of no bull stuff i got the pants the shirt the shoes really no yeah. frills yeah it's basically straightforward it, it's true but it's comfortable yeah. my gosh man I mean, oh, it yeah. really feels good so the shoes are like they, 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 go they don't your... have any designs or nothing on them they just say they're gray they say no bull you put them on they feel great i mean look and you if, go to work if 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 you had a company called no bull and it had a lot of frills in I the design then, then it would kind of be contradictory it'd be a little hypocrisy if clothes. i might say but they're not hypocrites yeah. <laughs> the clothes are the same way it's in the in the material too great for working out uh, wicks off the sweat and all that crazy stuff. Yeah. So it's really great. I'm enjoying it. Uh, if you're ready to challenge your gear the way that you challenge yourself, go to nobullproject.com slash Junior today. For people who put in the work day after day, visit nobullproject.com slash Junior and check out their training gear. That's N-O-B-U-L-L-P-R-O-J-E-C-T dot com backslash Junior. All right, here we got him, uh, Dave. Dave Marcus in the house. Uh, Dave, thanks for coming by. I know you you were uh, in Wisconsin. I know you live in Asheville, right? Yes, I do. Outside of Asheville, right? Um, but I know that you're a busy man. Uh, in are you are you even retired? Can you call it retirement? Well, I'm busier now than when I was racing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I appreciate you giving us some time to come in here. We had Chase Elliott in here last week. I love getting the new guys in, but I also love bringing in the history. Uh, and a lot of our listeners love when we bring you guys in here, so they're going to be thrilled that you're here. Um, I'm going to start off right right at the very beginning. What was your first race car? I had a 1949 Ford out of a wrecking yard up in Wisconsin. Yeah, and what did you do with that? Where did you take it and go race? I raced at State Park Speedway in Rib Mountain, Wisconsin, and yeah. that started in 1958. Uh, it used to be a track that was there years and years ago, and then kind of racing kind of went away up there, and then it was brought back by some fellows that used to be in it, and uh, they had a uh, a meeting, and there was an ad in a newspaper, and I seen that, 
And so I went to that meeting, and if you joined, they were going to start a club and rent the racetrack to get racing going again in the area. So if you joined that night, which was 100 bucks, you'd get a, ch- a choice to pick your number. Mm. So that's how I actually ended up with number two because I picked number two that night. Yeah. And I didn't have the 100 bucks, but <laughs> I joined, and I told them I'd pay them next week. Yeah. Why <laughs> number two? What was it about number two? Uh, nothing, really. Just if it was a yeah. available <laughs> yeah. what made what was what was going on in your mind that made you want to get involved in racing did you have family in racing had you well, been a wh- fan of it or well i was a fan of it and and i got hot rod magazine you know, you know in the mail yeah. and of course they covered a couple of the nascar races here didn't cover them all but uh i always pulled for richard petty i always liked the color blue and i guess that was the reason and uh I just, uh, you know, I just decided. My dad had a garage and a wrecking yard, so oh. I was around automobiles all the time. Oh, okay. And, and um, uh, my brother and I, we used to race some cars out in the field, and the neighbor kids would come down, and uh, and uh, when my dad and Ma'd be gone on the weekend, we'd get them old oh. cars in the junkyard going, you know. So that's where you got your first race car then? Was it your that that wrecking yard? No, it came oh. out of a different one. That oh, was, okay. That was called Arrow Auto Parts out on the west side of Wassa. Okay. But uh, um, that, you know, just got interested in cars and speed and tearing around. Do I you guess. remember your first race? Yeah. Well, what happened? Uh, I think the engine ran hot. Yeah. But I think I finished the race. Uh, it was a Ford Flathead, and, you know, things were pretty tough. And uh, <laughs> we got in a few fights back in the days, you? you know. Yeah, oh, no. So, so I don't remember exactly what happened in the race. I believe I finished second or third, but, you know, things got a little rough on the racetrack. There was, there was a couple guys standing by the car when they pulled in the pits. It, you know, it's hard to remember that long back what sure. all happened. But uh, that anyhow, was common I wanted back. to race for a living, and that's what I did. And uh, when I decided to come to NASCAR, I didn't have a clue, you know, what it what I needed, what it would take, and yeah, and I didn't have no money or no sponsors, and uh, you just so the story I've heard is you um, you were racing at your local racetrack in Wausau, uh, Wisconsin. You had a, you were winning so many races, they put a bounty on you. Yes, they did. And they, and you were <laughs> but that ups- was in '65. Yeah, and you were upset that you if you won, you didn't get that bounty money, and so you went away for one week and raced at state park or somewhere state park well i went to the, the racetrack in wisconsin rapids yeah uh we raced in we raced in tomahawk wisconsin on sunday afternoons in wassa my hometown on sunday nights or you could go to wisconsin rapids where dick trickle lived okay and so you had to go right by the wassa racetrack to get there on highway 51 and the promoter sam bardis put a bounty on me because i had won every feature race there that year and uh, I told him he needed to give me something, and he wouldn't do it. So I said, I'm not coming Sunday night. And he says, well, I doubt that you'll drive right by the racetrack to go down to the Rapids. And if you go down to the Rapids, you ain't going to win. He said, you got to race against Trickle down there and Marzufka and a bunch of them guys. So I drove right by Wassa <laughs> racetrack and went to the Rapids, and I won the feature that night in Rapids. And next week, he had me back in Wassa. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you won every feature every feature that year at, at the That's state park crazy. speedway in wasa except that one i wasn't that doing it <laughs> the other story that i heard was that when your wife and you moved from wisconsin you borrowed the truck you paid a dollar for that truck okay when i came down here and and with a 64 Wait. ford and then i ran 
I went to Charlotte and never got the car through inspection. It was an ex-Hominum Moody car, and yeah. I called Norris Frill, who was the chief inspector at that time. They said they knew the car and this and that and whatever. Iggy Katona had actually bought in the car from, I guess, Holman and Moody. It was an original Fred Lorenzen car. Oh. Uh, Iggy ran it in Arca. Okay. Then it got sold to a guy by the name of Alvin Perry, I think it was, in Kentucky, and Charlie Glotzbach was driving it on dirt tracks, and it was mm. advertised in National Speed Sport News. So I bought that race car. Um, so Norris Frill and them, they said, yeah, they knew it, this, that. So Trickle came with me, and we came to Charlotte to try and make the fall race. We never got the car fully through inspection. What was mm. the problem? Well, it was it was just little things, and every time we'd get something fixed, they'd find something else. And finally, it was down to the where you sit in the back seat. They had cut the floorboard where your feet sat down into the floor uh-huh. out of there and put flat metal in there, and they said we'd have to go to the wrecking yard. Get a stock floorboard. Yeah, yeah and put it in there to, to where, you know, you couldn't which do that. is ridiculous. Yeah, well, right. we were out of time. We right. couldn't do it. And yeah. I finally I told Trickle, I said, hey, you know, but, you know, we ain't got time to get it done. We didn't have no money to get home. Oh. So we went up and seen Richard Howard. He gave us $150 to get back to Wisconsin. Unreal. What year was that? That would have been, I believe, in 67, probably. So when you moved down to Asheville, you pulled the mobile home behind the car. Right. I met Clyde Lynn. Clyde was from Christianburg, Virginia, and he was running in, in the Grand National Series, what they called it at that time. And he had a wrecking yard up in Christiansburg, and he also was in the mobile home business. So I asked him if I could use his truck to bring my mo- motor home, my mobile home down here. Yeah. And he said, well, yeah. He said, what we'll do is I'll sell you the truck for $1, and we'll put it in your name, and then I won't have no responsibility. It'll be all yours, and when you get back, we'll put it back in my name. Wow. So that's what we did. And Helen drove uh, our 69 Camaro, and you know, because you had to have a lead car, <laughs> and then she would go ahead from state to state and get the permits. Mm-hmm. To drive the mobile home through? <laughs> and, I, and we slept in the mobile home. Unreal. That's funny. And, uh, and we ended up in Jellico, Tennessee, on, um, on a Friday night. Um, and uh, we were racing that, the cup cars that weekend in uh, Asheville, Weaverville. Yeah. And Lee Gordon, Cecil's brother, was helping me. And uh, my race car was at, at their place. And uh, he brought the car to Asheville, Weaverville. And, and they shut us down with the trailer at 6 o'clock in the evening. So that morning, we, we headed to Asheville, Weaverville Speedway. And I went there and qualified that day and ran that race. I qualified, mm. I think, fifth, but I think I dropped out of the race. Yeah, wow. That's you, right. Your first cup race was 1968 Daytona 500. Is that right? Yes. And you were driving Larry Weir's car. Larry Weir's car. We bought a, a 67 Chevelle from Don Biederman from uh, Canada. Don had been driving in the Grand National Series. And they built the car over by Asheville in Bill Seifert's shop. Mm-hmm. And you finished twentieth. Yeah, that's pretty good. It's not your bad. First, your first race plus is the Daytona Five Hundred. Yeah, yeah I, I that yeah. I mean, it was like making that race be tough. Well, when I drove in through the tunnel and I looked around, I mean, like holy man! I mean, turn four or once way down there. And, <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. it, it, it's a scary feeling. And, yeah. and of course, I t- talked to everybody that I could, and the first person that come and actually out, uh, welcomed me into NASCAR was Richard Petty. Really. Yeah, he looked the car over and this and that, you know, and and uh, said congratulations, come coming into NASCAR, and uh, 
Everybody said, you know, you can hold that thing wide open. You don't need to worry about it. You know, well, mentally you can. Oh, yeah. But your brain tells you, I mean, yeah. it don't work. So doesn't right. feel right. Yeah, you got to, I mean, you just lift. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was used to running half miles and sure. quarter miles and third miles. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was something. Yeah. It but was you, something. Eventually, a few laps, you got her wide open. Yeah. Uh, you drove a handful of races in 1969 for Milt Lunda? Milt Lunda, Lunda yeah. Lunda yeah. Construction Company out of Black River Falls, Wisconsin. And he, through Larry Weirs and the, and the Chevrolet dealership of Larry's, Milt bought all his trucks for the construction company from Larry. So Larry got him to help sponsor the, the car. Yeah, wow. And that uh, you only ran a handful of races there. But in 1970, you decided to drive your own quit, uh, equipment, which would be sort of your M.O. throughout your career. You had a lot, uh, we'll talk about a couple years you drove from other owners, but uh, I guess dry, I guess deciding to have your own equipment back in 1970 wasn't such a challenge as compared to today, uh, where it's near impossible. But maybe you can tell me, is that is that the truth? I mean, you, Yeah, I mean, it's... it's um, how did you obtain equipment? How did you, what was your process of like, I'm going to buy this car, I'm going to do this myself, I mean, you're your own accountant. You're your own boss. You got to figure out how to fix this, fix that, and get that ready, and get your crew together. How did well, you do all that? It's uh, I, I guess thank God there's a lot of race fans in North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, oh. and all around. And and uh, you know, the first time when I went to Daytona, I didn't even have a pit crew. I didn't know you really needed all that <laughs> stuff. Yeah. And so everybody pitched in. This guy had a spare guy, and that one, and and they all helped me and. I got to know some guys around Asheville, and they came and helped me. And, and Frank Graham, who uh, was with me for a long, long time, uh, eventually come to work for me. Um, they just they just all helped me, and that's how I got started and got going. It's everywhere we went in those days, I think most of the crews had help from the local areas, yeah. pit crew guys, you know. So, uh, But you call them race fans? These were race fans, or are these just other team members Local local racers, both. Okay, wow. Yeah. Okay, you yeah, had a race. Well, I had a couple boys up in Richmond, Virginia, that would would help me uh, every time we come up there, and they could come to some of the other tracks that were close by. Had guys out of Pennsylvania that helped me on weekends, you know, because they had other jobs and stuff. Were they volunteering, or were they, or were you paying them? Well, I, you know, I tried to always pay them something, you know, hundred bucks for their gas and get them a motel room and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. So what surprised me is how well you ran. Even with your own stuff, I, I mean, you'd only been cup racing for a couple of years. Uh, you're, you know, I've seen that race at Greenville Pickens in '71 that was broadcast. I mean, you ran in the top three there uh, with your own car uh, against the, you know, against the K&K Insurance team, big money team, Petty, all those guys. Pearson was there in the '17 Holman Moody car, and your car was durable and competitive. Um, as an independent, I mean, there were a lot of independents back then that, you know, Hilton and other guys. But yeah, half you, the field, I guess. Right. Mm. But you were the best independent, most competitive independent in, a, in, a, in, in the majority of the races you ran in just a couple years into the scene. How did you come in? Was it in your nature as a mechanic to be able to build a car that would be competitive? Cause, well, uh, I guess, uh, you know, running all the short tracks that I ran in and I'd done all my own work there, suspension and, and everything. So um, just just hands-on and a desire to, to do it and want to do it. And that's what I, and I just, I never give up. I just yeah. tried and tried and tried. And um, uh, I just, uh, 
I, I, I believe, I mean, that's what the race fan comes to see. Yeah. They don't just come to see somebody sit in the back of the pack and ride around there. And I wasn't down there to just ride around the back of the pack. I wanted to win some races. Yeah. And, and I didn't have enough money or good engines and all that to do that. But God, it, you got a lot out of what you had. Yeah, I just I worked hard. I just worked yeah. night and day on that race car. And you had an old Dodge Charger. Um, uh, you did you? And the story I heard was you would go to Petty's sometimes to work on uh, get parts from those guys. Uh, was Petty's the uh, the only connection you had? I know Buddy Harrington bought cars from Richard uh, for the, over the years, um, but they said you'd drive over there in the seventies in an old Honda Civic and load that thing down in the back of the Honda bumper be dragging the ground pulling out of the garage yeah maurice helped me a lot with parts and and then i actually had petty's build me a race car and, yeah. and uh, i talked with maurice about it and richard and they just uh when i get some money i'd give them some money and they'd do some more work on it and uh, they finally got the car done it took almost a year but uh, but yeah they built me a car yeah how was that car compared to the one you'd been driving well it was really nice yeah. <laughs> it was, it was good. Yeah. how'd it drive it drove damn good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so 1973, you got an offer from Roger Penske to drive his car. How does how does that happen? Roger call you up? Yeah, he called me up, um, and I, um, you know, of course, right away, you know, took the offer. Roger didn't run all the races. I wished he would have. Yeah. But um, but he had the Matador, and he needed someone to drive it, and I got chosen to, to do that. Was, so he didn't run all the races. What would you do in those races when you weren't in his car? I'd run my own car. And it would be a Dodge? Yeah. Right. And so you'd end up driving for Roger again in 77. You drove for um, – him in 1973 in the matador why one year in the matador with roger well he didn't he didn't run all all the series yeah. or all the races and i want you know i had to run them all because in those days the point money even sure. though if you were finished 30th you still got some pretty decent point money in the point sure so so i had to do that and roger was willing to to do that and roger even helped me some and let me take the matador several times two races but we took care of it and stuff our own team right but Roger would help me with the tires and stuff like that. So. And then you got out of that car after a year. Yeah, uh, he put Bobby Allison in the okay. car. Oh, so he, oh, he just went, he just went and put Bobby Allison in it. So you didn't have the opportunity to keep going with with Roger. No, no. okay. Somehow and, Bobby, you know, got in in the deal, and uh, and then you back in your own cars uh, in but, 1974. Yep. Yep. 1975, 1976. Uh, I'll ask you later about what were your best years and best team, but you drove for the uh, famous K&K Insurance Dodge. <laughs> Bobby Isaac had been driving the car for a while. He steps out, wants to retire or whatnot. I imagine that's when he was trying to retire. They called you up to take the seat. I guess you had to be pretty excited about that. That was a top front-running car. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what that deal was is when we were going, when NASCAR was doing away with the Hemis. Yeah. And the Chrysler products were having to, uh, either put uh, a wedge-type cylinder head on the Hemi blocks, which a lot of them done, but then, then they started the cubic inch change after that. So um, Buddy Baker was in the car at the time, ah. and I don't remember where Buddy went, but K&K quit running all the races, and Harry Hyde called me up asked me if I'd drive the car at Charlotte and Rockingham. Mm. That was in the fall of 74. I think I put trickle in my car for one of those races and Jim Sauter the other time. In the K&K &K car, we dropped out of both races, I believe, with engine problems. 
And then at Christmas time, I was up in Wisconsin. Harry called me up, and they hired me for the 75 season. And then I drove the car again in 76, and then the team got sold to uh, Jim Stacy. Yeah. And uh, he put Neil Bonnet in the car. Yeah. So um, you won some races in that car. Uh, yeah. And I know that that the cubic inch stuff and the in the Hemi battle that that like K and K and Harry were pissed. Like they were sort of like mad because they were taking all that power away. Thought that it was unfair, and the result the resulting you know motor they'd have to run would wouldn't be competitive. And so that's why they pulled out. Uh, but they come back in. Uh, you're out there, and you go out there and win races. You're finally a winner. How did I mean that had to have been pretty incredible? Yeah, well, I mean, I had a pit crew and all kinds of people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, it was really nice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but the thing is, and see, uh, how it all came about is when Bobby Isaac had kidney stones one time at Talladega, they put me in the car for the race, and I put Bill Seifert in my car because it was after qualifying and yeah. everything. And I led the majority of that race that day, and then the engine blew like with five laps left. Uh, I was leading the race mm. at Talladega, so I guess that was kind of our connection. But um, it was a great team to drive for. I mean, yeah. it was just but, – but the deal is is to, to win all the polls we did and win the races, and then when the team gets sold or whatever, you ain't got a ride. Right. Yeah. And, and it was very disappointing. Then I drove for Roger in 77 – Again, and uh, then he got out of the sport because he realized he's just too far away from the sport. You know, being up in Reading, Pennsylvania, and these guys are down here at home working on the cars, and, you know, we're going up and down the road. Yeah. And and so Roger got out of the sport, and he said he'd one day get back in it. And when he came back in, he had Rusty in the car, and I guess that was a connection through Don Miller. Right. But uh, then I drove for Osterlund, mm -hmm. and then— um, your father took that ride uh, a year later, yeah. I think. The yeah. um, the idea about that that I the rumor that I'd heard was that Osterlin was wanting to go to two cars, and that back then it was not. Dad always hated the idea of a teammate or having two cars. Daryl didn't like it either when Neil Bonnet and him were paired together, and that you weren't uh, in favor of Osterlin having a second car. Well, see, I don't know where that came from. That's not. That's not true. Hundred percent. No, the deal was, uh, I think, Roland Wallatica, who yep. was in charge of the team. Mm -hmm. What actually happened and why I left the team is they fired the crew chief, who was Dewey Livengood. That was my crew chief, and Dewey had worked for me many, many years before, and on my car and built engines for my Hemi's, and um, I think we had three races left. It's a first-year team. Dewey had his Rockingham car ready, his Atlanta car ready, and his uh, Calif Ontario, California car, and they fired him. No reason given. And Osterlin always said to me, if there's ever a problem, it's just a phone call away. Well, I tried calling him, and they wouldn't take phone calls. Hmm. So, you know, and Dewey didn't know why they fired him either. Yeah. Um, so I go to Rockingham. I drive the car. We were running, I think, we were either second or third in the points with three racers left. Yeah. A first-year team. I think that's pretty good. Yeah. You so were very competitive. It just was working on me so much and so bad and bothered me when we went to Atlanta. After we qualified, I went up in the press box and told the press I was quitting Osterlund. Ooh. And I didn't even know that your father was going to drive the car for them next year. I, I, I didn't yeah. even know that at the time. He had driven the sportsman race car at Charlotte. Right. Um, so a lot of people thought 
that I quit because he was coming into the team. That's not that's not true at all. Gotcha. Um, so so that night, I guess Osterlin tried calling me a bunch at the motel, but I called Helen and <laughs> told her that don't call me tonight at the motel because I'm not answering the telephone. Damn. So he didn't know about it when you made that announcement? Well, I don't know if he when heard you told it on the press. The press. Yeah. So I that's the first he probably learned about it? Yes, sir. Wow. So how uh, – So I went – then we went to Ontario and ran that race, and, and I think Roland – monkeyed with the car with the transmission so we had a, a problem and had to change that during the race on a pit stop and he dropped the throw bearing down in the bell housing and i think that was intentional wow um, so i told helen after that deal i said i'm going back on my own because yeah. i mean i had to make a living that's what i'd done for a living and uh, i didn't have no salary from nobody and no big sponsors yeah so i told her i said it's going to be tough but at least i'll know i got a job Politics, yeah. you didn't have any. Room I for am politics. not a politician. You don't come off as a politician. <laughs> yeah, Harry get, or Harry Hyde. So Harry Hyde had a quote uh, for you. Said he had the talent to be a champion if only he weren't so stubborn. Do you think that's <laughs> partly true? Well, I mean, I, I don't know exactly how he comes up with that, <laughs> but I mean, I just I believe in doing what's right. And treating people like you want to be treated, and and I've been honest with everybody. That's just how it is. Yeah. And and I, I you know I can tell you guys one at Talladega. Everybody not don't know about this, but usually when the K and K Dodge went to Talladega, that and the Wood Brother car with Pearson in it, were one of them two cars usually was going to be on the pole. Yeah. And at one time we were a little bit short, and um, Harry couldn't. You know they they had us by a tenth, I guess. Mm. And uh, Harry said, what, what, what do you want me to do to the car? I said, take the spoiler off. Now, in those days, we had a one-inch wicker bill on the <laughs> right, back. Right, that yep. was it. And we could have it or we didn't have to have it. Harry said to me, he said, you can't get around the racetrack with that off the car. I said, yes, I can. I said, I've been working on it all morning long when we practice. And, and he said, you're going to get in the wall off of turn four. <laughs> and I said, no, I won't. I said, I can make it. And um, they shut track down for the lunch break. Harry went out in the infield and had lunch with his wife in the car, and when he came back in for uh, getting ready to qualify the cars, he comes up to me and he pokes me in the chest. He said, Dave Marcus, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I said, what's that? He says, I'm going to take that spider off that car. He said, Columbus didn't know where the hell he was going to land when he took <laughs> off either. <laughs> That's awesome. So he took the spider off the car, and I won the pole. I did brush the wall coming off of four, but we won the pole. Wow. <laughs> How would you des describe Harry Hyde for us? Uh, constantly working on the race car, thinking about the race car, trying to bend the rules, read the rule book, uh, uh, constantly he never gave up he was competitive all the time i mean he just he just thought race car race car race car and i mean he had robert g doing the bodies and and buddy parrot and i, I mean just everybody there and, and harry was uh he, he was the stubborn guy right <laughs> no that's what i've always heard and like but, like he has these funny one-liners like you just gave us and we laugh at it but was he did he have a sense of humor was he kind was he cordial did, did he joke around yeah, but not around the racetrack much. Uh, he, he he was serious all the time. I mean, he, you know, the time when at Daytona uh, when it was so cold, and I think they qualified the first couple cars, and the guys burned some engine bearings because it was so cold. They weren't letting us warm them up good enough. So all of a sudden they, they stopped and they said, let all of us warm the cars up, and tape the radiators. So 
Harry just had a piece of aluminum, and he just put the piece of aluminum in front of the radiator. Well, they disqualified AJ. I think he won the poll for nitrous oxide. <laughs> then they disqualified Darrell Waltrip. They found nitrous oxide in his car because mm. um, he was second, so he was going to be on the pole. Well, then Harry and them had already left the racetrack and went to the motel, and they wanted me to bring the car into the inspection area, and I told them I couldn't do that. You know, as Harry wasn't there. So um, the car was in the garage and covered up. The team was gone. They were back to the motel. We were third. All right. So uh, the next morning when we come back to the track, they pushed the car in there, and they disqualified the car because Harry put a piece of aluminum in front of the radiator instead of using duct tape. And he was hot. I bet. I mean, he was hot. He's like, what's the difference if it's got dirty underwear or <laughs> tape or rags or, you know, he was... <laughs> he was hot so so what he actually done the next race we went to he took one of them two thousand dollar radiators and took his pocket knife off and bent every fin straight across the full radiator bent them all shut to plug the radiator damn dang I mean, it was pretty furious in those days yeah things that went on you know yeah. with inspections or inspectors and crew chiefs and uh, yeah uh, do you know Loretta? Have you ever met Loretta Lynn? This well, is the yeah. most random podcast question that we've ever had. But do you know Loretta <laughs> Lynn? Well, I, I've met her like, but with Marty so many years ago, she probably wouldn't remember it. And I always well, liked Loretta. Marty Lynn. Robbins. Marty Robbins. Yeah, F fellas. Loretta Lynn apparently is in our lobby, uh, and I don't know. Uh, I just getting text. Matthews getting text. Loretta Lynn's in our lobby and wanting to meet you guys. So um, you never knew who's going to come by. The dirty Moo. She's studio. fantastic. I think, All right, listen, Dave, let's get her in here. Dave, you, you, <laughs> come, you come here and then country music legends show up. Is that? I think that's because of you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Let's go check this out. All right, we'll get back to talking with Dave Marcus here in a second. But first, Dale, let's remind our listeners about an important partner. Mike, that's a good idea. Let's tell everybody about our partnership that I've had several years with Valvoline. I drove a Valvoline-sponsored car at Darlington back in 2015. The paint scheme, it was amazing. A lot of drivers are sponsored by motor oils, but Valvoline, they're different. They are more than just a logo on the suit or on the car. Valvoline, they're our true partner, and they always are hands-on in helping us make our engines perform better. They'd send teams of individuals over to Charlotte to work directly with our engine guys in the garage to be able to squeeze out more horsepower in our engines. We literally would mix different types of oils together, and it didn't matter if we were running at plate tracks, road courses, short tracks, or intermediates. They'd always had a solution for us to make our cars more powerful. The power ranges for those tracks are in different places. That's right. The torque ranges are in different places, mm -hmm. and you'd need different oils to perform different uh, at different tracks. Believe it or not, it is true. It is. They helped me score that grandfather clock at Martinsville back in 2014. That's why Valvoline is the only motor oil I trust in my engines, and it should be the one you trust in yours. From high-mileage rides that need that thick anti-wear film to newer engines that have carbon buildup, head over to Valvoline.com slash Dell to find the product spec for your motor. That's Valvoline.com slash Dell. Unfiltered commentary and an abundance of opinion. Mr. Nice Guy or Mr. Get out of my way. Like Johnny Cash, we ain't afraid to walk the line. I'll walk the line. Listen to Door Bumper Clear. Available on all major podcast platforms. 
burns, burns, burns. Ring of fire. Door, bumper, clear. clear. Yeah, that was good. Um, never know who's going to come in here and <laughs> hang out Just for rain. a few minutes. Dave, man, y'all, y'all picked right up where you left off. Um, <laughs> that was good. Uh, thank you, D- Dave, for uh, allowing us to do that because we were in the middle of some good stories. Here. Yeah, we were. Yeah. <laughs> talking about Harry Hyde stuff, and yeah. all of a sudden, Loretta Lynn just comes through the roof. I want to talk about what I think <laughs> is uh, you might consider the highlight of your career. Uh, 1982, uh, you, were, <laughs> you were driving a Chevy Malibu, and you were lapped down, uh, but you made the lap up when the caution come out for the race leader, Joe Rutman. He spun out on the front straightaway. You passed him, so you got your lap back. There were three drivers that were ahead of you, and they pitted. And you had assumed the lead, and then it began to rain. The race was called complete as darkness set in. You were declared the winner, and you described the wind saying, quote, I wasn't praying for rain, but I told the guys when I got out of the car that if the good Lord wanted to help an independent, this was his chance. Mm. (laughs) You quoted it as your greatest moment in racing, and you had even built your own engine for that race. Going back, thinking back on it today, still the greatest moment in your career. Well, certainly one of them. I mean, getting in NASCAR was great, and winning the first race at Martinsville was great. But that deal that day, I actually had had just got past. Joel Rutman passed me in the third turn, and he spun out coming off of turn four but never crossed the start-finish line, so I went right back by him. And I don't. a lot of guys didn't really catch what happened. They threw the caution out. Well, I needed to stay on the racetrack anyhow to catch back up to the pace car. Everybody else dove in the pits. Mm-hmm. And Dale Inman noticed what happened, and he only put two tires on Richard and tried to beat the pace car back out, but they didn't make it. Wow. And so the rains, I remember that day, and uh, I've watched that race quite a few times. And, you know, I don't know if I've seen a bigger smile on your face, but uh, (laughs) the fact that you built your own engine for that race, I mean, it's 1982, you know, building motors, everybody built their own motors pretty much back then. There wasn't a big supplier, but... I guess like building your own engines, you built your own motor, put it in your car. That had the satisfaction. I, I mean, we we take our own cars to the track and we're proud of them. We don't build the chassis and weld them together and build the motors. But uh, uh, imagine the satisfaction that you have personally from yeah, uh, winning a race with an engine that you put together in the shop. Yeah, and and uh, Frank Graham and I and and Ben Barnes in in Asheville, Ben done the machine work on the block force and stuff, and yeah, we uh, it it was our own engine, so it's it's pretty satisfying when you can can accomplish that, especially, you know, in in a NASCAR race. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah, like I mean, uh, has, heard of has anybody done it since? I mean, can you no. guys think of anybody that's no. built their motor and won with it? No, I think it's not the last driver. One. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I. I I, just, I basically I used to tell people I do everything I haul the race car I wreck it I drive it and I work I wreck on it, it. <laughs> yeah. and pretty much from that point I mean from that moment on in your career all through the '80s I mean until you retired you drove for yourself um, mm-hmm. and when did you when did you quit building motors did you build all your motors what no not all, all of the way them two thousand two no no um like i say dewey live and good done a lot of them for me and, and jim michaels uh up in indiana yeah. done them and ben barnes done some for me uh so i had different people building them and of course with the testing that i done for your father and for richard childress um you know they always want to pay me and i told him i didn't want no money just give me some good parts i'll win the money yeah just i need better parts i was willing to 
you know, so I would never take anything money-wise. And, and Richard took care of me with restrictor plate engines, which is very difficult for a small team like mine to have a competitive restrictor plate engine. Yeah. So if there were new things uh, that they wanted to try and because of the involvements with the championship and all the time when your father was, you know, had a chance to win the championship, generally I would run that stuff in uh, like a restrictor plate engine first to make sure it's worthy of a good 500-mile race. Yeah, so you get putting the miles on that stuff, make sure it's going to last. Yeah. So you talked about it, testing that, <laughs> testing for RCR. How did that all come about? They- well, I guess when we lost Neil, then your father asked me to uh, help him test. And uh, I can't even remember where we tested first, but uh, he was happy with what I did in the race car. Uh, you know, again, uh, we had a good relationship, and, and uh, it's, uh, you know, he was bullheaded too. Yeah. And, and uh, I remember a moment when both of you, both of y'all's bullheadedness came together. Yeah, Martinsville. In a practice. What happened? And, and, well, he kept hammering on me, and uh, I spun him out. Yeah. Oh. And it, <laughs> it took him two months to talk to me. <laughs> he finally come up and grabbed me around the neck and a big grin on his face, and he said, you know that deal at Martinsville? I said, yeah. And he said, I had that coming. How good of friends had y'all been up until that point? Were y'all pretty tight uh, up yeah, until that point? Well, yeah, but, I mean, we both, you know, he worked a lot on his race cars, too, just like I did on the short tracks and stuff when he was racing. So, yeah, we, you know, we weren't as, as close, I don't think. But, um, but he come up and grabbed me around the neck and had that big grin, and, and he said, you know, that deal at Martinsville. I said, yeah, I, I do. And, and he said, well, I had that coming. And he said, my daddy always told me if you had a problem, don't carry it down the road. Handle it right there. He said, and you did. yeah i was there i was at that track uh watching y'all uh practice in one and two and i remember dad hammering on the back of the car and then uh next time y'all come through dad wasn't there anymore you come running by and you had a little fender damage and uh and i was like oh man i didn't i didn't know you know i learned later that that dad had got spun out down there (laughs) and um you were always considered tough to pass you know and a bit of a bit of a badge of honor, kind of like Ryan Newman is today. Ryan Newman, we love Ryan Newman, especially as a broadcaster, because he's going to make it hard for that guy to get around. Even a leader uh, coming up to lap him, he's going to race for his position in his lap. Um, and you were always a guy who ran hard every single lap, no matter the position, no matter where you were on the track or who you were racing. Um, and you did that your whole career. How do you sustain that that passion? How do you sustain well, that drive and determination? I guess just just determined and wanting to do it and again my philosophy is that's what those race fans pay to see that's what brings them to the races and and I you know I tried to give everybody all the room that I could and keep the car lower whatever when I was getting lapped but yes I raced them every yeah. lap mm. every lap Always. don't apologize for it either do you yeah yeah no. oh, people appreciated it absolutely um 1999 you had a crash <laughs> at Pocono Oof. I watched it again just the other day incredible uh, that you were able to walk away from that. It took you, you a little ginger to get out. Yeah. You remember was, much about that one? That was a bad crash, yeah. yeah. Um, Brett Baldine clipped me going in the tunnel turn and put me in the wall, and, yeah, that was a wicked, wicked crash. I, I can remember hitting the wall and then coming to, uh, and, you know, can't get your breath back. and knocks all the wind out of you, and I, 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 I could – 
I could see, and, and, and I know I had a bad wreck, but I, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get my breath back. Mm. Have you ever yeah. – um, is that the worst wreck you've ever had? Or you well, had yeah, I think so. Certainly certainly one of them. I mean, good Lord had to be looking out after me that day. I mean, yeah. that was that was a wicked, wicked crash. Oh, I, I mean, I was watching it over the weekend, just kind of uh, looking back through some of your races, and, I, and, I, and I'm like – Oh, you know, we're programmed now to just assume that there's safer barriers. Like now that we've been enjoying that for however many years. And then I'm like, whoa, that, there were no, that was pure concrete he slammed into. Yeah. And that man, I, I can't airborne. even imagine, airborne, spun around, thing just, I, I, I'm like, how do you walk out of that thing? Like, how is it? I mean, it was so scary even now to watch it. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a hard one, I'll tell you that. And uh, I guess, I don't know, a car hit hit the wall so hard and it just climbed up the wall and it still had so much momentum when it got above the wall it started spinning then you know yeah. it it was yeah it was a hard crash yeah. yeah i um had a crash just like it at fontana mm. where i got clipped in the right rear by harvick coming he had a flat tire and he's coming down the track trying to get to the pits and i drove by and he clipped me with the uh, in the right i rear. seen that and it hits like the the thing that i think was lucky for dave is that it hit with the left front corner Missed the door and then hits with the left recorder panel, right? It didn't smack the wall flat. flat. It didn't flat side with the driver's side. That probably would have been bad for both of us. Uh, but our cars sort of hit no left front first, then it swings the back end, and you sort of it sort of misses you, if you can understand you. what I'm saying. That, that's one thing we can all say for NASCAR, the, the safety in the cars, and they've always been really big on yeah. the safety. I mean, when an accident happens, they take a look at stuff, and what needs to be changed. Yeah. And it's always been the best of any racing series, in my opinion. Yeah. You went over to race in Australia. NASCAR went over there a couple times. They had built this oval. And uh, Bobby Allison, Neil Bonnet, a couple of the different guys, uh, you were one of them. Uh, tell me about that trip and how, uh, you know, you're on a tight budget as it is. I know you probably drove somebody else's car. I'm not sure. But how do, how does, uh, how do you pick up – how do you say yes to Australia? <laughs> Well, I guess we were asked to go, and, and they, they offered to buy the airline tickets, and, and I drove actually a car from the West Coast owned by Dick Mitchley out of uh, Victoria, British Columbia, and um, it's um, it was a great experience. A lot yeah. of the very nice people over there, and it was a very nice racetrack, and uh, can't I can't remember... But but the money and the the purse was great. I, I believe we won like sixty eight thousand dollars in in Australian money, and that converted over to about forty six to forty eight thousand American. So yeah, I mean, the value still yeah. can't hold up there. Yeah, but it, it's close. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I was talking to Kyle Petty about that, and he said you got on the plane with two sandwich bags full of sandwiches, the large sandwich bags what? full of sandwiches and multiple sandwiches in each bag, and you ate all of them on the way over there. <laughs> Who they said s- this? Kyle Petty. Kyle Petty said that so they— The things that they, people keep in their mind about yeah. these things. I mean, like, he, well, probably, he's probably still agitated about he, that. No, but. he just said nobody could eat more than Dave Marcus. Oh, I got you. I got you. It, all right, so is this a truth? I'm a pretty good eater. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you stay so thin. Yeah, I work. I'm, work. Is that right? <laughs> What kind of sandwiches do you fill up two bags heading to Australia? <laughs> what is that like? Is it P- PB&J? Is it pimento cheese? What do, you, what do you like? I like peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, yeah very good. I go-to, mean, man. <laughs> it's hard to beat it. <laughs> so you always remembered, you're always remembered for wearing your good, Goodyear hat that you have on today, and um, that's because you've had this long-standing relationship with Goodyear. Uh, when did that start? 
about 1970. Um, it, well, let's see. Uh, I guess uh, probably somewhat in 69, we were at Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, we had the two tire companies at that time, Goodyear and Firestone, and a lot of the drivers had a contract with Firestone, and Goodyear was trying to get involved in the sport. And that particular time, they were having tire problems with the Firestones. And um, somehow, uh, the Goodyear tire was a good tire and a safe tire. And even the guys that had contracts, like Cale Yabro, I think, had one. And I don't remember for sure about Pearson. But they, they talked to NASCAR, and NASCAR said that they could get some of the small teams if they wanted to, to stay after the racetrack closed and scuff tires because they, they needed to be scuffed. And so um, I think I actually was on Firestones at that time. And and we stayed. I know Cecil Gordon stayed and I stayed. And I don't remember what others, but it was about four cars or something like that. And we scuffed tires for a lot of them big teams. Yeah, you scuffed all the tires for the series. Yeah, and and uh, wow, a lot of guys, uh, even the guys that were on the Firestone contract, started to race on the Firestones, but switched over to the Goodyears uh, during the race. Yeah, yeah, but that's how your relationship. But yeah, that was kind of the start. And then in 1970, Firestone put a big uh, point fund out there if you ran on Firestone tires. Goodyear came to some of us smaller teams and supplied us uh, X amount of dollars worth of tires for the season if we put a Goodyear tire service store ad on the race car. And, Decal. Yeah, uh, the whole quarter panel. Oh, wow. Really? The whole quarter panel. And so um, I, I went with the Goodyear people, and I exceeded that that amount of money that was allotted, but uh, they took care of it, and uh, they just helped me when I needed help uh, in my career. I, I just didn't have the money to buy a a lot of tires and stuff. And, uh, and the tire war in the 90s uh, got pretty nasty when Hoosier came in. Yeah. Um, tires got softer and softer and softer and more dangerous. Blistering, popping tires started breaking guys' legs and all kinds of stuff. Wow. They had this race. Uh, uh, they had a race at Charlotte, and the Goodyear was particularly fast. Um, and basically everyone, to be competitive, had to go over to the Hoosier tire except for Dave Marcus. Mm. And you were the only one that didn't switch. The only one, yep. And that was because of your uh, loyalty. Yep. Yeah. I thought that was pretty impressive. Uh, well, I I, I just, uh, I, I guess like I said earlier, I, I'm not a politician. I believe in doing what's right, and, and they helped me. And uh, I actually was in the office talking to Leo Mayo and uh, seeing what kind of tire he could bring because the tire that they brought to Charlotte to compete with the Hoosier wasn't lasting either. So it was going to be they didn't have nothing in the race or they had to bring another tire. And I tried to get Leo to bring the Atlanta tires, but he said he didn't have enough of them because the rule is you have to have enough to supply the field. Mm. So he said, all I have is Daytona. And he said, I don't know that you can get qualified on the Daytona tires. It's I said, so you bring them, slow. I'll get qualified. Yeah. I think I qualified like 36th or something, but I, I got qualified. But your father and Kenny Schrader walked in Leo's office and wanted him to do the same thing, bring an Atlanta tire because they didn't want to run the Hoosier tire either. Right. But um, they eventually switched before the race. So I was the only guy that stayed on the Goodyear oh, tire. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. They switched to Hoosiers? Yep. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so the record that Goodyear has in NASCAR by the number of years and starts and so forth wouldn't have been intact had I not done that. Yep. We had a similar situation at Pocono. Really? Yeah. Actually, the deal at Pocono, I think uh, they maybe put the car through inspection with the Hoosier tire on it, but then when we had it out on pit road, we switched them. My guys went down pit road and put the Goodyears on. I took the green flag with the Goodyears. <laughs> oh man that's pretty awesome that is wow and we're really happy you wore that hat i i, <laughs> I didn't know if you still wear the good hat. But it's, does he have the wingtips on hoped. too well i hoped no I, I just i like the good your hat and it looks I good mean, like i said when i was struggling didn't have nothing like in 1970 i didn't have no money didn't have nothing and yeah. they gave me tires so i'd stay in business another thing you remember you remember for is for wearing wingtip shoes when you raced and I've read a little bit about the story about how that happened. Do you remember what, what uh, brought that on? Well, in those days, a lot of us had trouble burning our heels on the short tracks. And, uh, and we, it would burn a hole in your heel through the sole of the shoe about the size of a dime, and it would be like a funnel. And it was really difficult to heal because it would always try and heal across the top around the edge but it's like a funnel it wouldn't be it would stay raw down internally mm. and um we were at north wilkesboro and bobby allison had just burnt his feet at uh, or heel at the race the short track race the week before i don't remember which one it was but he come limping up pit road and i think kale and richard petty and myself uh, pearson were standing there talking and i said poor bobby you know he can hardly walk he was limping up pit road, and uh, uh, I, I said, I burned mine a little bit, but not that bad. And then Pearson said to me, he said, haven't you got any shoes with leather soles? And I said, I just got uh, my dress shoes, wingtips. He said, where are they? I said, they're out in the trunk of the car in the suitcase. And because uh, we had come from the motel and we were at the racetrack. He says, well, wear them today, and you won't probably burn your heels. So I went and got them wingtips and sent Helen out to the car to get them. I wore them that day at Wilkesboro and didn't burn my heel. I just started wearing them, and then the race fans picked hmm. up on it. And, I mean, I'll bet you 75 people Saturday night at Hickory when we were signing autographs bent over and looked under that table and <laughs> want to see if I had them wing That's what I was just doing. <laughs> it's amazing. Them race fans don't forget. Yeah. That you, I mean, it became an identifiable thing with you. I mean, you and the wingtips. Yeah. And I was always curious, did that ever lead to a, a, you know, a partnership or a relationship? Much in the same way you and Goodyear developed a longstanding relationship. Did I mean, you, you are the wingtip driver. And so did you ever develop a relationship with a shoe company to where you did? At least didn't have to pay for them? <laughs> well, the, the ones that, no, I bought all of them and they were Dexter wingtips. Okay. And, <laughs> And uh, the people from Hush Puppy sent me some one time, wanted me to wear them, but they didn't have the leather sole on theirs. Hush Puppy people didn't know what's up. <laughs> he didn't do it for fashion. He did it because he didn't want to burn his feet. Hush Puppies are fried, man. <laughs> I want them feet fried. Yeah. Goodness. You drove for uh, uh, one of my favorite paint schemes in your career was the Helen Ray Special. Tell me about that uh, race team. Tell me about the ownership. And how that came together? Well, uh, Helen Ray was uh, was a business lady from uh, Arizona, and uh, her and her husband owned uh, Smitty's Stores, they were called, and they had food and jewelry and clothing and everything, and she ended up getting a divorce. I guess she enjoyed racing, and uh, the Phil Bartdahl, and, and they were involved with her, and uh, Phil wanted to race, 
and she was willing to sponsor his race car. So they came and talked to me if I would look after a car for him because they were only going to maybe run six races a year or something like that. Yeah. And in turn, they would sponsor my race car. Oh, wow. So so I, I, I took that deal because, you know, I needed help. And uh, so I looked after, we looked after Phil's car, and then uh, she sponsored my race car. I was wondering how all that came together. Yeah. Um, going back through your career, what's the, best, what's the best year that you remember? What's your most fondest year in your career? Well, I, I mean, you know, again, you know, 35 years of racing, and there's a quite a few, but like in 1974, I really had a lot, a lot of good finishes running as an independent. Yeah. Uh, I know we ran one of those Hemi engines one time, six races, and one of them was the World 600. Straight. It was an engine that Dewey built. Ran six straight races. Yeah. Yeah. And I think our worst finish was a sixth place with it. So you got to hang on to that motor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I wished I still had. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, that was a great year, of course, with K&K Insurance. And, and, I mean, there's a lot of highlights. It's hard to, to pinpoint them all yeah. individually. But uh, but just, just I guess, just coming down. I mean, when I first come to race in NASCAR, I didn't have a $100 bill in my pocket. Yeah. yeah. I just how, how difficult was it to make the decision to finally retire? That was tough. Yeah, but I the thing the thing was getting that I still wanted to race, but I couldn't keep up anymore. I didn't have the money. You know, yeah. and, the, and the people, and you just about had to have an airplane. Yeah. Oh. And I couldn't even begin to think about that. So, I mean. Yeah, uh, traveling to the West Coast and all that stuff made it almost nearly Yeah, I mean, my, my guys and me, and we were in that van going up and down the roads all the time, you know. We used to run Dover. I mean, I'd get up uh, Sunday morning for the race and run that race, you know, and that used to be a five-and-a-half-hour race if there weren't many cautions, sometimes six hours. Mm. And then drive the tow truck home so my guys could get some rest. And then we'd unload that race car when we got back to that shop about 9 o'clock on Monday mornings. And we'd work all day on the car at the shop and not go home till Monday evening. Yeah. And so, then you would have to, like, pull out for the next race. Yeah. Wednesday. And in those days, a lot of the racetracks we went to on Wednesdays. Yeah, because there was, there were, the weekends were longer, right? right? You know, yeah. years ago, we used to go to Talladega on a Tuesday. Yeah, open practice all day. Practice would start at 8 or Nine o'clock in the morning, and the track was open to five. Run as much as you want. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Go out there anytime. That's correct. Isn't that yeah, crazy? It's crazy. And it was weird. Like the the Charlotte Charlotte used to do a four lap qualifying, wasn't it? Like Indy Indy five hundred used to do. They did a four lap average or something. Yeah. yeah. But they would be at Charlotte Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, open practice all day. Guys out there running. Other guys working on the car for hours. Wow. Uh, it was a real relaxed, for from my vantage point, you know, I'm a kid, I wasn't working on nothing. I imagine it was not very relaxing for the guys working, but there, it wasn't the, you know, happy hour hustle. It wasn't the show. No. Everything's a show. It wasn't yeah. everybody just yeah. hustling as fast as you can to get everything you can done in an hour. Yeah, I, I think everybody, you know, all the drivers and all the crew members of all the teams, they all corresponded more with each other because we had all day to do it, like you said, yeah. so... And and we all borrow parts from everybody. I mean, I had parts from Petty. Sometimes they had parts from me and when I had the Chrysler products and, and everybody in the garage. I know Richard one time said, hey, you guys, he got all the Dodge guys together and Chrysler guys. He said, we need to take an inventory and get all these parts back on the right See who's trucks. got what, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. Well, so um, back to the retirement question, how long had you been 
mulling that over? Like how many was it? Was it something that kind of hit you all of a sudden, or or had it been something like a four or five year you know consideration? No, um, I just couldn't. I didn't have the money to keep up, and and that was it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I want to be competitive, you know, and it, it was getting harder and harder to be competitive uh, because of the money that everybody else had and all the engines and the, all the costs were just going up so drastically. Yeah. Uh, what do you have? From your racing career in in your possession today, you have any cars? Uh, just just the uh, last car that I drove at Daytona, and that's the car I've been going and doing some of them speed runs with. Yeah, and stuff. so you go yeah, out to yeah. yeah. And tell us about that. What what, what are you doing? You're setting land speed records and stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's the original Cup car exactly. I mean, the inspection has changed now, of course, but if it had to go back through that original inspection, it could. Wow. We've cut nothing up on the car. Um, and when Dewey uh, retired from Richard Childress's, they gave Dewey the the development engine of the breed of the engines are running today when, when the SB2s went away, and it's engine number 003. Wow. And, and so for your father... And, and they gave Dewey that engine when he retired complete, headers, intake, carburetor, everything. Dewey called me up one day and said, have you still got the Speedway car? I says, I do. He said, I got this engine they gave me when I retired. Let's put it in there and go down to Maxton and do some speed run to see how fast we can go. <laughs> so that's what started it. We went down to Maxton, and I think the first day there, or the first time, I guess we spent two days there, uh, we got over 200. Wow. Well, that was pretty encouraging because we were running Daytona tires because I don't want to cut the car up. So, you know, the clearances and stuff, sure. I couldn't put no big wide slicks or nothing on. So um, we uh, then, then that track went away. It got leased. And um, uh, I think the next one was uh, they got a track up in Ohio. And uh, it's an old airport at Amazon and, and uh, them people had up there. And uh, then some guys come and told me, some of the guys that do the speed runs and stuff, said, you need to put them narrow Goodyear Bonneville-like type tires on the front. When we put those <laughs> tires on the front of that car, the car picked up four miles an hour just with them <laughs> narrow front tires. Mm. You know, it's from a standstill. It's a measured mile from a standstill. Oh. They timed the last 132 feet of that measured mile. Mm -hmm. Oh. So it's really difficult for me to get going with them hard Daytona tires. I got left side Daytona tires on, but uh, but we're up to two nineteen. I was going to ask you. I'd be so like because uh, I saw in two thousand twelve you set like two or three land speed records with that car. Yep, yep. And and you got how fast two nineteen? We're at two nineteen point two seven nine or something right now. Yeah, we're going to get over two twenty. Wow. And y'all are doing this just for fun, basically. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, it. I, I thought, I like. Surely he's, you know, partner. Somebody asked him to come do this because this isn't that long ago, right? I no, mean, well, do we want to run that engine? And a couple and of like guys I just want to see how fast you can go. Well, I mean, again, you know, his father and, and I were good friends, and that engine is zero zero three, and and Dewey, and uh, you know. So, um, you had a good weekend. Um, Ryan Repco uh, won the Cars Tour. 276 at Hickory this weekend, which is a throwback race for the Cars Tour. They have super late models and the late model stocks, and this is the late model stocks portion of the show. 
He raced with Dave Marcus paint scheme, the number oh. 71 Realtree paint scheme. Dave was in attendance and was able to join him in victory lane. How did that feel to have somebody out there honoring you with their car, much less than win the race, you'd be able to celebrate with them? Yeah, really great. I, uh, I didn't even know that there was going to be a Carter with 71 on in, in real tree yet on top yeah. of it. And, uh, yeah, um, I watched the qualifying, and, and uh, he didn't win the pole, but he ended up second. And then I went down and introduced myself to him and talked to him. That's the first time I met him. And uh, he, it's very impressive. He done a great job on that he racetrack, sure using his head, taking care of them tires. And uh, it's uh, – yeah, it was quite an honor, really. Yeah, it, it, it was an honor to you. you. It was special for you. That was something that uh, you know, from an emotional standpoint, to yeah, see, it, see your old paint scheme out there. Yeah, well, I just went down there to sign autographs. You know, I didn't know uh, nobody told me that that that, that number was going to be on the car oh. or anything like that. Oh, I would have assumed that there was a connection. Like if you, oh, you're going to run a paint scheme or somebody's running a paint scheme, invited you there. While you're there, go ahead and sign autographs. You had arranged that separately. Is that no, what you're saying? I, I didn't you, know anything about know it. it. I just went down there to sign off. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it was pretty neat. So uh, he done a great job in the race. It, it was just almost like like I had a headset on because, you know, he had the lead. And, and um, I, I don't know, I think he led 30-some laps or 40 laps at first. And then there was a caution. And he chose the inside on the restart. And, and the guy on the outside got the jump on him. And he, and he lost the lead, and the, the, the fellow that came with me, Todd Wagner, a guy that used to work for me on the team, I said to Todd, I said, I hope he just sits behind that guy now and just lets him set the pace and just push him hard enough right in the center of the corners to keep him working and get his tires hot. And, mm -hmm. and, and that's exactly what he did for about 70 laps. And when it came time to pass him, he just drove underneath him in three and four, and away he went. And they yeah, could right. not keep up with him the rest of the race. It was a good race. Yeah. Do you still watch a lot of racing? Do you, do you get it wrapped up in it? No, not no. much. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, uh, it's just not racing like we raced. Yeah. Mm. What are you doing with your time? You building hot rods, I heard. Well, I work on some of that, and I got a big garden, and I got a dump truck I mess around with, and I got that Teramite backhoe yet from your dad and I's uh, relationship with the people <laughs> at Teramite. And uh, I got hunting land in Wisconsin, uh, go up there and do food plots. I cut firewood. Try and go fishing. And yeah. Still got the restaurant? Good. Yeah, I still got it. Wow. What's the restaurant? It's a bar, a motel, and a restaurant up in Rib Lake, Wisconsin called Camp 28. Yeah. And it's all on the same piece of property. Cool. All right, to come check it out. Yeah. We like to eat. Oh, I don't know. God. I mean, it sounds like you might eat more than we do, but I mean, we <laughs> like to eat. <laughs> well, I want to end on this one story uh, that last it uh, stayed with me for my entire career as a driver. We were at, uh, I was working in dad's dealership, changing oil, phone rang. Dad said, come to, in the morning, get on the airplane, the King Air, with your helmet and your driver's suit. To the, you're going to Talladega. And he didn't say anything else. So I got on the airplane, go to Talladega. I get there, and they're testing the uh, Xfinity car with a new V8 engine. They're moving the V8, they're taking the V6s out of the Xfinity series, which was the Busker National Series at the time, and they're going to put a V8 in there. So Dad was testing this V8 at Talladega. You were there. You were driving the car. Um, they also had Dad's cup car there, and he was messing with that for some reason. But So you're hanging out with Tony Sr. and Tony Jr., all the guys on that number three uh, Goodwrench car that Dad raced in the Xfinity Series with a V8 motor. Dad said, put your suit on, and you're going to go drive it. 
And so he said, you know, get out there and go run. I go out there and I go run. And, and uh, my lap times are really close to what you had been running. You've been out there running for hours. And uh, I'm thinking, man, I ain't even really done it. You know, I ain't really done anything yet. Or I don't, I'm, <laughs> I figured, I'm, I'm sure I can find a way to run faster. <laughs> I, I'm sure I wasn't even thinking about what I was doing. And now that I've been out there, I know I can clean it up a little bit and go quicker. So I go back out there. And I was way slower, almost a second slower. And I was like, I don't know how in the hell I run slower. I opened the wheel up real nice. I don't know the straightaway, let the car feed out toward the wall and uh, let the wheel do it at one or two in the corner when it wanted to jerk around and through the bumps. And anyways, I come in and dad jumped right on my tail. What in the hell are you doing? Why is it so slow? And I said, well, I let the wheel do what it needed to do in the corner. I thought that car letting it kind of feed around would be easier on it. No. Hold it with a hold it with a kung fu grip. Don't hold it tight. Don't let it move. Don't let the steering wheel move at all. And I said, "All right." I said, "Yeah, coming off the corner, open the wheel up. That's stupid. Don't do that." And walked off. Right? He's got to go be it back in his car. And Dave walks up, and I, he, I said, "Dave, I said I, I run this lap, and I, I let the car feed out the wall." And he goes, "Oh no, no, no! You don't want to do that." And I was like, "Why not?" And Dave Marcus says. You're just adding feet to the lap. You're just making it longer. They're making the distance longer. And you taught me how to drive the line, you know, and get back in the car, <laughs> held the steering wheel as tight as I could, and I ran the tightest line I possibly could. Because I asked you, I said, won't it bog it off, bog the motor down off the corner? He's like, oh, no, 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 don't worry about that. He's like, just run as short a line as you can run. And I was like, all right, if you say so. And I went out there, and I ran basically, you know, right over the top of your lap times. And I always remembered that. I took that everywhere, every race. When I went to Daytona and Talladega for the rest of my cup career, I always remembered uh, Dave's words. And any time I thought maybe opening a wheel up was the thing to do, I always reminded myself about that day testing at Talladega. I was probably only about 17, 18 years old. Hadn't been racing late models but for a couple months. Um, but I wanted to, I appreciated that. You know, I was just a young boy. I wasn't even racing in the Xfinity Series yet. And dad didn't have the patience as a father to say, this is what you need to do. This is why that's wrong. This is why that's yeah. right. But Dave, being the student and the, I mean, being the teacher that he is and the, the, you know, with his knowledge and spent, you know, moments with me to fix that, fix my problems out there. And it was, uh, it stayed with me my entire career. It helped me win polls at Daytona. Um, we would watch the dark fish and I'm, um, you know, we beat Jeff Gordon for the pole at Daytona. And I told my crew chief, I said, I ran as, t I ran the best line I could run around one and two. I'm literally, because you, you had to run as tight as you could, but if you hit that apron with the splitter or the, or the skirts, yeah. that was speed. You know, there was lose. one bump there too. That yeah. Day. And you could hit it, you lose a mile an hour. And I said, I ran as tight to the apron without touching it as I don't think I could have done any better. And we watched the dart fish, and I was literally six inches lower than Gordon all the way around the corner. And you can see my car just inching ahead little by little by little. And um, and it was because of that com that work with Dave that day. I'll never forget it. Um, you were always amazing to me. When I went to race in Iraq, I ran there a couple of years. You were one of the guys that worked with those cars. Um, not only did you test all the cars, which was a tough task, yeah. Uh, that took a lot of hours of your day. You had to drive all the cars to make sure they were pretty equal. Um, you and Dick Trickle, Jim Sauter. Uh, but you also, when we would, when the drivers would come over there to drive them, you would sit down or, or you would answer any question 
that I had because I was a fish out of water, you know, and I'm I'm this I was only in there because I was the Xfinity Series champion, right? I got no Cup experience racing against Cup guys, Indy car guys, yeah. and I'm like, golly, how in the heck am I going to do this? And uh, you're 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 tutoring me, and anytime I had a question, uh, you spent all the time that I asked for, um, and I appreciate it. Um, big big fan of yours. A lot of respect for you and what you've done for our sport and the things, the time you put in. There's going to be a ton of people that are thrilled to hear this podcast and and relive some of those memories. And uh, your memory, I don't know how in the hell it's amazing. It's better. Than, <laughs> it's, that's been the most impressive thing from this conversation know, right? is how how you you recollect all those things. Yeah. I don't. I can't even remember shit like well, that. But 30, <laughs> thirty-two years I've done those Zyrock cars. Yeah. There were weeks when I was in a race car seven days a week. Right. Wow. Between between testing your father's car and the IROC cars and my own car. Yeah. You know, we'd run Pocono, and then we'd have a test come up at Indy, and there would be an IROC race involved. So Childress would have your father's car there, and I and my guys would try and bring my car, and I would be doing the IROC car. So <laughs> Monday morning we was going again, you know, it's right crazy. after the race at Pocono. Yeah. We appreciate you. Thanks for coming by. Well, thank you. It's it's a pleasure being here, and just want to say hello to all the race fans and, and hope they enjoy the show. They will. I can promise <laughs> you. No doubt about it. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Hiring used to be hard. Multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, a confusing review process, but today hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. There you go. ZipRecruiter. Sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop just there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applicants come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so that you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so efficient that four out of five of the employers who post on ZipRecruiter Get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-A-L-E-J-R. ZipRecruiter.com slash Dale Jr. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Time for the Valvoline DIY question of the week. Dale, you know, we get this a lot, so let's ask it right now on the DIY because this is a big DIY project you did. The Western Town. How did that happen? What, what's the latest with the Western Town? I mean, it's been around a long time now. So the, the Western Town on your property, uh, t- tell us the story. Sure. So the Western Town is definitely a DIY project. We were looking for a, we were looking for a place to hang out and raise hell with friends. I didn't want that place to be connected or part of my own home. <laughs> right. And so, you know, back then I was smoking cigarettes and drinking, and we would party in the basement of my old house across the street from DI, in the, and it ruined the entire house, right, because all that stuff's going through the returns and the air conditioner and everything. I didn't care if people went outside to smoke or not. They smoked inside. It was awful. And the floors would get destroyed, sticky mm. and thick with spilt drinks and beer and all that. And so uh, we were trying to figure out something, and I thought, man, I'm going to build a treehouse. 
This is way back before I ever saw that there were actually people building tree houses right. for adults. Uh, but I thought, man, I'm gonna build a tree house, you know, big thousand square foot or something like that up in a tree. And Kelly thought, well, you're if you're going at a party, you're gonna fall out of that, or somebody, somebody so, is. Yeah, we know your friends. Yeah. So I thought, yeah, that's probably that sucks. So we can't, <laughs> yeah, that would suck. <laughs> we can't build. Well, it was just disappointing. It was a letdown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can't build it. Damn. Love that idea. So I was watching a 60 Minutes special, a rerun actually, of Willie Nelson. And he had bought some property and it had an old Western Town movie set, just the facade of the buildings. And he finished out the saloon so he could go in there and hang out. And I thought, wow, that's perfect. I'll do that. Mm-hmm. All I need is the facade of everything else. Nothing else has to be real except for where we're going to party, which will be the saloon. So I had this place down next to this creek, and it's a, it's a, it's a uh, floodplain, so I, can't get a, I couldn't get a permit to build there. So we built this on cinder blocks. It's not got a foundation or anything, and not footings or nothing in the ground. It's just laying on dirt. But me and Sonny, my property manager, drew sort of the, the size of this western town, or this basically the saloon first, on a napkin. <laughs> we hired independent contractors from the southeast, uh, mul- various different guys that had never worked together that were looking for work to come down there and build it. And in six months, we had a saloon, <laughs> and we had added on a hotel because I thought, well, if we're going to party on my own property, i got to have a place for people to sleep if of they course. need to sleep it off. And as time went on and, and building went on, we added on... Uh, you know, stores and and sheriff's office with jail cells. My uncles, Robert and Jimmy Jr., built the jail cells, welded them up here in uh, Junior Motorsports. We got a bank with teller windows and everything. We have a church. It's actually been used for a wedding. That's Uh, right. My friend, Sean Brolick, used the Western Town setting. It was a beautiful wedding. Yeah. So anyways, when we first built it, it was just for partying. We had parties there pretty much every week. Um... And every Tuesday or so, we were there till the sun came up. And uh, people, a lot of people come over, hang out. You know, that eventually sort of over years, over a decade or so, ran its course. And we just kind of quit using it. Then it became something that people started using for commercials. NASCAR shot some commercials down there, multiple uh, music videos. Different bands have came and used it. We use it for uh, uh, company functions, family day. Mm-hmm. We use it for sponsor events. They love coming down there and having dinner, mm-hmm. catering it. We've used it for New Year's Eve parties, for friends, uh, weddings. So it's kind of become this multi-purpose sort of, you know, thing. Um, <laughs> and and that's uh, yeah. It's, I'm glad that it continues to get used. When it was built, it looked brand new, right? But it's a western town, so we had Shauna Robinson, old race car driver and friend mm-hmm. of ours come through and she's a designer sort of uh paint paints and does a lot of decorating and so forth she came in and painted this whole town from, i mean all of it this entire town to make it look uh used and worn and, and rustic it took a while but she did a lot of great work all of it's still there uh but it's you know we've had a ton of fun there it's still a place where maybe once or twice a year we'll go down there and have some beers it's got a pool table, big giant bar, beer. Uh, it's easy to cater down there. It's pretty functional, to be honest with you. Pretty, it is. Pretty useful. Yes. Um, yeah, a little, yeah, got internet down there and so forth. I know people. some people probably think that's funny, but 
when you're down there and there's no cell service, there is no cell service. There is down no cell this, service. Yeah, down in this bottom yeah. that it's in. Uh, if it belongs to you, you will have fast internet speed. <laughs> and that's yeah, just yeah, a yeah. fact. All yeah. right? I don't care where it is. It's helpful. You yeah. play, if you're going to stream music or whatever, watch a fight or, or a football game or something down there. We've watched, you know, we've watched the Super Bowl down there. We've watched big sporting events down there for fun. So it's great. Um, you know, don't expect uh, the bathroom to be too awesome. It's pretty straightforward, and there it's a it's a, like the bathroom is for guys and girls. And in a being in a floodplain, it's got that sulfuric smell when you flush. Um, so <laughs> the point being, uh, yeah, it's no frills. It's like it's it's pretty rough. It's frilly. No, I mean, it's kind of... I mean, look, that place, well, what you define as rough, I'm telling you, there's a lot worse. Yeah. I mean, being in a Western town, I don't know what people well, expect, right. like it's a Paris, you know, restroom or something like, like the, that. There's tables and stuff in there. All that it's stuff... It's awesome. All that stuff, all the tables, all the chairs are hand-me-downs, like used wooden chairs. They fall apart. You'll sit in one and it'll just fall apart on you. Yeah. Um, well, that's, you know, that's no frills. Yeah. Hey, you know what I love about that? Did you know this, Matthew? Uh, a lot of the, the big wood beams came from the Canapolis, uh, the Cannon Mills. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. So they were recycled from the when the Cannon Mills yeah, got yeah. Uh, imploded. We built this thing as cheap as we could, so all that stuff was uh, pennies on the so, dollar. So there's history That's in this history thing. right yeah. there. That's cool. Yeah. 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 And all the, the some of the old original paint and stuff still on those beams. Yeah, man, we built it ourselves pretty much. Haven't got any fines or anything from the county or... Uh, whatever the you know for build, for building it without any permission. If it was going to happen, it happened already. Because right. I mean, yeah. at this point, you know, everybody's they want to go see it. So uh, it's been an awesome place. I mean, like you know that thing, like you said. I mean, I've had a birthday party there. You've yeah. had birthday parties there. I mean, we've had a lot of good time, and it's uh and it's still there, get being used. That's awesome. From high mileage rides that need that thick anti wear film to newer engines that have carbon buildup, head over to valvoline.com slash Dale to find the product spec for your engine. That's Valvoline.com slash Dell, and a big thanks to Valvoline uh, for doing this segment. Thanks for tuning in. This is the Nationwide portion uh, of the show. Well, it's the Ask Junior portion of the show, sponsored by Nationwide, our longtime partners. Uh, so excited about your questions today. Let's go, Leah. All right, first question from B.D. Lankford. I think everybody probably wants to know what it's like to be calling a race and one of your cars spins out another driver in a payback situation. Mm. Uh, yeah, so the re- reference uh, that's referencing this weekend with um, uh, Justin Algar and uh, Ross Chastain, this could take the entire segment, to be honest with you, to describe. <laughs> but anyways, uh, I had to call both where Chastain spun Justin and where Justin spun Chastain. I had to call them both, and... Uh, that was in my segment of the racetrack, and it was very easy to call it straight down the middle. Uh, honestly, you know, I, I want to work some of the Xfinity races. I don't want to work them all, but I do want to work some of them because I just like the repetitions and, and learning and getting better. And I can call those races without pulling for my cars, without hoping they'll win. I can shut it off like a light switch and... Uh, you know, we've I've raced a long time. I'm not a new owner. I've been an owner for a long time. So it's not really about the balls and strikes or the wins and losses. It's about the long term, the the employees, their benefits, their happiness, their livelihood at home, their families. So the you know, leading laps, running for fifth and getting wrecked, 
that's part of life. That's part of racing. It's easy for me to sort of put that on the shelf for the day and just be a broadcaster and and call the race. So I didn't really have a problem with it. And, uh, yeah, I'd rather it had been in another corner so I didn't have to call it. But um, th- when thrown into that situation, I feel like I can call it pretty straight. I can call it as straight as the next guy. And, you know, I felt like that's what I did on Saturday. I felt like, you know, they got down in the corner. Justin drove down on the inside of Chastain, three wide down the back straightaway. They got into the inner loop, and Justin tried to race into there. And uh, it's tough to do that too wide. Somebody always ends up on the wrong end of it. And he ended up on the wrong end of it in that situation. Um, and I think Ross didn't pay him any favors, but Ross de- didn't want to spin himself out, so he held the wheel straight, and Justin got turned around. And uh, Justin was unhappy and mad about it. And Justin was uh, rep- Justin said in his post race, he said it's, it's not just about that particular day or that particular corner or getting spun out today. This is something that's been going on for a while. We've had I've had problems with him, or uh, he's had issue with Ross. And I could see it coming. They went down the back straightaway. Ross gave a car in front of Justin and Justin an opportunity to go by, entering the inner loop. Justin said, I don't want to pass you going in the inner loop. So he's going to uh, stay behind Ross because he wants to punt Ross. And I saw it coming, and I think I called that pretty much like it was. He went in the corner and sent Ross for a spin in the uh, carousel and put Ross out of the race and, and – uh, that you know, I I really kind of as far like I, Johnny Davis and I, the owner of that car, chatted just a, a bit after the race. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's no big deal. Um, we both go into there knowing that uh, those cars could be junked, and uh, we definitely don't want our drivers to continue that situation uh, going forward. So I I text uh, I text Justin after the race. I said, Hey, I said I don't want Chastain wrecking us next week. You are tasked with getting this straightened out you get with chastain and y'all work it out um and i gave him johnny's number uh so he could reach out to johnny if he wanted to and talk to johnny about his car and so you know all that stuff will work itself out it's nothing that doesn't happen pretty much almost every week between somebody uh owners and drivers and all that good stuff but yeah i feel like if it happened every week i'd I'd probably have to talk to my driver more about you know, not doing that every week rather than what I'm going to do as a broadcaster. You know, I want to continue working those Xfinity races and um, hopefully, yeah, I don't have to do that often because if I do have to do it often, maybe I need to talk to my my driver about getting in those situations every single week because it's not doing anybody no good. Kind of on that same topic, um, John Duncan writes in and he asks, the days of Rubin is racing seem to be changing to Rubin gets you dumped. Is that how you see it? And if so, do you, uh, what do you think is the reason for that? Well, you know, Rubin is, Rubin is racing basically has always meant, you know, you can lean on me, I'm going to lean on you. Uh, you know, if you want to rub my side and give me a donut, I'm going to give you a donut or two back. What happened, you know, when you get spun into a wall like Justin, uh, Bubba Wallace, uh, Jimmy Johnson, that's not rubbing. That's not rubbing's racing. That's getting spun into a fence. Uh, and you're going to be mad. Your car's tore up. You're no longer competitive. You've lost all this track position. Uh, it sucks. And you're mad. And you want the other guy to suffer the same way you did. It's kind of like when you're in a relationship and you're you're hurt and you want to make that other person feel that pain. 
uh, and you always make the wrong choice by trying to do that. But that's what you do as a driver too. You you know when you're in that moment when you're spun out, wrecked, and you're mad, and your day's over, you want that other driver to experience that same frustration, disappointment, uh, and you want to put them in the wall. Uh, and if you're given that chance really quickly, like Justin was, because that was moments later that he was behind Chastain. I think if they had been not been on the racetrack for 20, 30 laps, maybe Justin would have thought, uh, thought you know, better about doing that. I don't know. But if you're given a week or several days or me even 50, 100 laps to consider doing that to another driver, a lot of times you change your mind. You think, man, maybe I don't want to do that. Maybe I'll talk to him after the race. Or maybe I'll wait for another opportunity down the road when it's really going to matter uh, to that person, such as in a championship battle or so forth. So, But anyhow, the question being, Rubin's racing – Rubbing is two cars leaning on each other. What we saw yesterday was guys getting turned into the fence. What we saw Saturday was guys getting turned into the fence. That's, for, that's, that's getting turned into wall. You want to go do it to the guy, next opportunity. All right, let's move on to a fun question for you, Dale. Um, if you were to put a doll, a toy car, or a stack of plastic Tupperware in front of Isla, which one would she choose to play with? Start again. If you were to put a doll, a toy car, or a stack of plastic Tupperware in front of Isla, which one would she choose to play with? Probably the car. She she knows she doesn't know the word doll. Um, she she knows the word car. Everywhere she sees, like we're walking uh, through the parking lot today, car, car. She came in here earlier uh, before the podcast or during the podcast. All she sees is cars. Hmm. Um, so that's probably what she's going to go to first. She, we, got, we had a checkup at the doctor, and the doctor asked us how many words she's saying, about four or so. And we were like, oh, she says about 20 or so words. She's got a lot of words she's saying. And car is one of them, um, car and ball and a couple other things. But she'd go after the cars for sure. All right, Jay Pinkerton, he wants to know, um, from the broadcast this past weekend, was the camera down the backstretch in the inner loop a drone or was it a cable? It was on a cable, um, and it was it, it was, yeah. On this very long cable, obviously, and it they just run that thing back wide, you know, wide open back and forth, and uh, pretty impressive and a great shot. Obviously, mm. I think everybody enjoyed that shot a lot, and it gave you a great perspective of the cars, how they could break, uh, outbreak each other entering the corner, and then maybe somebody got through the center of that inner loop or exiting it better. You could really see that as I could describe it to you. Uh, that really helps. I, I'm trying to describe something. I, it's really helpful when that visual aid is there and that 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 angle was perfect all right guys that's all we have time for today for yeah i think I, going back to uh rubbin's racing thing you know i think a reason why we're seeing so much uh just you know cars getting turned around and bent fenders and so forth is because um the etiquette on the tracks changed a lot um back yes. in back when mark martin used to drive he sort of he sort of ushered in a idea of you know you're faster than me i'm gonna let you go if i catch you later give me the same respect but if it's in you know 50 laps to go we'll race each other to death uh, but you know first 400 miles of a 500 mile race it's lots of give and take that's really gone out the window and it's because of the new rules it's because of the low horsepower high downforce it's really made it a small box for everybody to live in as far as competition the fast cars and the slow cars are now much closer together in speed. And so you can't allow a guy to get by you because that is the that is a position that's not you're not going to get back very easily, if at all. That's why we saw the 9 and the 78 racing up through the S's door banging. Trex knew that if he didn't get by him right then, 
probably wasn't going to pass him. He knew it, and he had to take that risk of getting turned into the wall or getting a, a flat tire. They had to race through there side by side. You see them, you saw it all day long, guys racing down into the corners side by side. 10, 20 years ago, they would have gave that spot away easily. They're not doing it anymore, and I love it. I think it's amazing because everywhere we go, guys are racing each other for position where they wouldn't do that before. Yeah, a lot of feelings are getting hurt, but we're getting to see, as viewers, some really hard racing. We're getting to see some rubbing. We're getting to see some guys spun out. We're getting to see some guys pissed off, and we're getting to see some retaliation. It's drama. It's, a, it's, it's good for the sport. It's storylines. Uh, it's, it's the way it used to be back in the 70s and 80s as far as the mentality of how you race and how you race each other. And uh, I think it couldn't be coming at a better time for us. Keep coming, bud. White flag, bud. White flag right there. White flag. White flag. Follow us on social media, everybody. That is at Dirty Mo Media and subscribe to us on YouTube. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about socks, you guys. All right? Oh, you know, yeah. you go, you're sock people, right? Between now and September 27th, the Dale Jr. Foundation and Nationwide Children's Hospital is asking you to buy and show off a unique pair of socks as a way to sock it to childhood cancer. That's the program, Sock It to Childhood Cancer. These socks are fantastic. They were designed by eight-year-old patient champion Carter Nance at Nationwide Children's Hospital. All proceeds go to the Dale and Amy Earnhardt Fund for Childhood Cancer Research. Buy your socks right now at www.socket2cc.com. That's socket2cc.com. Com, or you can find it at the Junior Nation retail locations. By the way, I want to give a few shout-outs regarding the Dale Junior Foundation. Y'all know that the biggest event for the foundation is coming up here in about a month or two. It's the Driven to Give event, and Nationwide is the presenting sponsor. Our partner here, Dale's partner forever. Uh, you know, he's been with them for more than 30 years. I don't know if y'all know that. That's awesome. Uh, but they are the presenting sponsor of this event, so big thanks to them. Also, Blue Harbor Bank and State Water Heaters have stepped up. They're contributing in big ways to that event. So thanks to all of you guys, uh, and we look forward to that Driven to Give event coming up in a few months. Some Apple ratings and reviews. <laughs> all right. We had a bunch this week. A bunch. So I'm going to try to condense. I've, I've picked some pieces out of each one to try to fit in more, okay? <laughs> so these are short, but this is uh, some, some of the stuff they said. All right, KW Bomb 488 wrote, Thanks for being real and leaving the fake to stick in ball sports. You guys are genuine, scars and all. Oh. You like that? I like that. All right, Hershey Bear says, The best podcast behind Door Bumper Clear. Oh, Again, man. another. <laughs> The hell, the hell is that? Uh, we shouldn't be reading those. Well, I mean, you know, listen. <laughs> well, that we should, we're real. They gave us five stars. Oh, well, T nice. Drums Nine gave five stars and wrote, "I hated podcasts. If it wasn't for this show, I would have never given podcasts a chance." Now here I am looking forward to my work commute so I can listen to both the Dale Jr. Download and Door Bumper Clear. I'd love to see one combined podcast, which is something we have actually talked about. We may do that here in a few weeks. Thrill gave five stars and wrote, would love to hear more about crew chiefs exploring the gray areas of the sport. That always interests me. Um, I thought it was a pretty good idea. Chris Strasberg says, even as a Gordon fan, I have a lot more in common with Dale. I don't usually listen to podcasts, but I love this one. I met Junior on Pit Road at the Roval last year, and you know what? He was a nice guy. <laughs> I don't know what he expected. I mean, but you were nice. Yeah. Thank, good job on that. Uh, lastly, a fan in Colorado gave us five stars and said, this podcast has rekindled their love for NASCAR. I love these types of reviews. Yes. Yeah, I like uh, We've those seen well. these a lot, so I'm reading mm -hmm. the whole one here. Uh, this podcast has rekindled my love for NASCAR. I was not a Dale Earnhardt fan. In fact, I hated the Intimidator. 
It's supposed to be a gentleman's sport. And he was no gentleman. I don't know anybody who thought this was a gentleman's sport. But anyways, then in 1998, in Daytona, I found myself on the edge of my seat rooting for him with three laps to go. What the hell? I'm I feeling is what they write. The white flag waves, and I literally screamed, Go, Dale, you got this! <laughs> All of a sudden, I realized, I'm a Dale Earnhardt fan. That being said, for the last few years, I've quit watching NASCAR. There were other things to do. Then a couple of weeks ago, I began listening to this podcast. I realized I have fallen back in love with NASCAR. The histories and the stories on this podcast have been a treasure. By the way, Dale, we've all shat ourselves at one time or another. <laughs> <laughs> and that's white flag. Good one. <laughs> Odd history. The year was 1987. Huey Lewis and the News was a red-hot rock band that already had three number one hits. <laughs> like The Power of Love. That was a good one. Not my favorite, but... When they weren't doing it all for their baby... I hated that one. They were showing a whole lot of loving. Not another song that I would have picked mm. for from their catalog, but... Uh, they were showing that loving to their friend and race car driver, Tim Richmond, during the Champion 400... In August 1987 at Michigan International Speedway, Tim had Huey as a special member of his pit crew. His friend Huey handed drinks to him on the pit stop. (laughs) After a blown motor, Richmond, he finished 29th. The race actually turned out to be Richmond's final start. Mm. An even odder tidbit about Tim's connection with the band surfaced a year later. Tim was battling double pneumonia, which unknown to most at the time was due to complications stemming from the HIV virus. Richmond was said to be training to try to get back into the race car. He was quoted as saying, I was going to start running a little bit, but I bummed up my ankle. I was at a Huey Lewis concert in Kansas City and then fell off the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Goodness. I'd never heard that story. I knew a good bit about Tim's. Uh, final few you know months in, in NASCAR and all that and how that went down. Never heard this story. That last uh, race, I think, too, is the one where supposedly he bl- he blew the engine. You know, the rumors were that uh, yeah, at that Michigan race. Good. Yeah, good stuff. Man, that's a great show. Mm-hmm. Dave Marcus, awesome guest. But before we put a bow on the show, let's have some fun with Pristine Auction. Door bumper clear. Another podcast we have on Dirty Mo Media bids on items from the table for their show using Pristine Auction. If you don't know about Pristine, they're an authentic memorabilia website where you can bid and win amazing autographed items from the comfort of your home or your podcasting table. That's right. (laughs) I've signed for these guys. They're legit. Authenticity guaranteed. Every autograph on there, it's the real deal. There are all types of apps. There are all types of auctions, including daily ones. Also like those 10-minute auctions. Those are fast. Get it done. Get, get your item. You can snag some good deals on those 10-minute auctions. For some reason, we let Dillner pick out the items to highlight. And this week, he's going to try to bid on a uh, Ric Flair limousine. What? Yeah. <laughs> it's a black-stretched limo signed by the Nature Boy. It has a few bids on it already, up to 20 bucks. That's really a pretty freaking creative island item. Especially Woo! if it's a real limo, right? That is a very... <laughs> no, it's a die cast. Oh, oh it's, it's a, a die, die cast. Die. Got it. Thank you. It is a... That's very creative. I'll hand it to you, Matthew. Good job. 
I actually wouldn't mind having one of those on the desk. <laughs> Go check out pristineauction.com now. It's free to register, free to bid, and of course, you only pay for the items you win. That's Pristine Auction, spelled P-R-I-S-T-I-N-E, auction.com. Listen up, Junior Nation. When you register, please select Dale Junior Download Podcast from the drop-down menu in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's really important. It lets them know that we sent you there. All right, guys. Enjoy. I hope you enjoyed the show. Enjoy your week, and we'll see you next week. This bit of badassery was made by Dirty Mo Media. Dirty Mo.